Good afternoon. I want to welcome everybody to the Iowa City Council Economic Development Committee of Monday, November 27th, 2017. Um, usually we always go around to get names, just helps Wendy with minutes. Susan Mims, City Council. Jeff Fruin, City Manager. Ashley Monroe, Assistant City Manager. Simon Andrew, Assistant to the City Manager. Wendy Ford. Eleanor Dilk, City Attorney. Uh, Sean Lewis, Riverside Theater. Jennifer Holland, Riverside Theater. Rockney Cole, City Council. Jim Throgmorton, Mayor of Iowa City. Charlie Easttown, Community Member. Okay, thank you everybody. Um, item number two, consider approval of the minutes from the October 19th EDC meeting. So moved. Second. Moved by Throgmorton, seconded by Cole. Any discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Passes 3-0. Thank you very much. Item number three, consider request for funding for Riverside Theater. Wendy, turn no. it over to you. <clears throat> sure. You have a uh, memo in your packet and a letter from uh, Jennifer Hullen at Riverside Theater with a request for funding for FY19 and also an intent to fund for FY20 and 21. Riverside Theater, as you know, has been around for more than 30 years and has been operating the summer Shakespeare in the Park Festival for about 17 years, I believe. This year, um, they want to try something a little bit different, and um, mainly because the uh, summer season is make or break for them, and if it's if it's break, it's really bad. If it's make, it's pretty good. So, uh, so in order to mit mitigate some of the unknowns and and the roller coaster aspect of having a summer season with two shows in City Park. The festival is contemplating having um, one Shakespeare in the Park event run in the summer and another indoors at the Gilbert Street stage. The big difference this year is that they would like to offer the Lower City Park Shakespeare event free and open to the public, to everybody in the community. And we thought this was a particularly interesting idea because it does a couple of things. One is it helps mitigate those unknowns in, uh, for producing two shows almost all summer in the park. Those unknowns mostly being weather, and in the last couple years, you can add construction to that. And it's been a while since there's been a flood, knock on wood, uh, but all of these are unknowns that can, hap can and have happened, actually, too. Um, to the festival. So they would offer the Shakespeare event at the outdoor festival stage in the summer, I think running somewhere between June and early July. Um, and then uh, after that, have their indoor production at Gilbert Street. The outdoor production would be free, as I said, to the, um, to the public, with the idea to expose more of the community to both Shakespeare and to Riverside Theater in hopes of also building clientele for their indoor season, which now goes full year. So in order to do that, um, they are requesting $20,000 in funding to help make up some of the costs for producing this outdoor free festival for everybody. Um, and I think that was about all that I was going to say other than um, Riverside Theaters mentioned in both the comp plan and the central district district planned as being an important organization to support uh, for a number of different reasons in the north side area for its um, fit with art and culture in that area and in the comp plan because it's an institution that, that we all, all of us citizens rely on. So um, Jennifer Holland is here as well as Sean Lewis and um, Jennifer penned the letter behind the memo and I'll give them the opportunity to speak a little. 
Yes, go right ahead. Well, I was scoot well, uh, one of these oh, microphones. Yeah. Thanks, um, and thanks for having us. Um, yes. Wendy did a great job summarizing it, so I'm just going to jump in with a couple of things, and I think um, Sean will also be jumping in. As artistic director, he can definitely tell you a little bit more about the vision and the artistic plan for the summer. One of the reasons we think the free plan is so appealing um, in addition to mitigating risk is we think we will be able to involve our sponsors at a much higher level. One of the things that we know we're up against in a really healthy way is the wealth of free programming in Iowa City during the summer. So we think that um, the idea of removing the ticket barrier can easily be replaced by funding that we can generate from businesses and individuals in the community. Um, this is particularly possible in the upcoming summer because we've got to the point where our expenses, monthly and for the summer, are at a level where they can reasonably be offset by extra fundraising. So it's, it, that's, and that's largely due to innovations that Sean has brought to the picture in the past season and a half. Um, so we feel the time is right for this sort of experiment. We know that when we moved the second show indoors last summer, um, we kind of we kind of gave everybody what they wanted. I mean, it, the people who love the outdoor show saw the outdoor show. We truly only received two complaints, exactly two, about moving the second show indoors, um, and we sold out nearly or sold out or came close to a sellout every single performance. So we think the strategy of having the split venue and programming that that includes Shakespeare, but something that also is broadly appealing. Um, worked for, well for us last year, and we can really build on that for this year. Do you want to share a little bit about the artistic plan? Uh, sure. Um, well, oh, sorry, that's really loud when I do that. Um, <laughs> um, for me, so I, uh, having the Shakespeare, sorry, <laughs> having the Shakespeare Festival be free is something I had been thinking about bef long before I think you even had the job. This is something I've been curious about. I'm from New York City originally, so the idea of going down to the Delacorte and seeing Shakespeare Festival, New York Shakespeare Festival, is kind of how I was introed to theater, um, and clearly it stuck. Um, so it's definitely been something I've been interested in. And also, some of the innovations, the base of the innovations that I've brought to Riverside in the past year all kind of come from the same fundamental belief that I have, which is that economics, especially in the arts, but I actually think in everything, stem from experience. Like, if you have a good experience at a place, you go back to it, right? Like, I grew up with a very temperamental dad. If we went to a restaurant and they didn't bring him enough bread, he had a bad experience. He didn't go back there. You know, my mom noticed the lights. You know, like, it, it was, sometimes it was almost everything besides the actual meal that people would my my family would respond to if the meal the meal would also have to be good I mean but but if other things weren't the meal suddenly got worse um, and so we talk a lot about our Gilbert Street season and like what is the experience we give the way that I plan season is really I've learned is really different because in my mind it's a lot of how do we change the entire space and experience of the shows every basically six weeks so that each time you come to the theater you're like I've never seen it done this way before like I haven't seen the space in this way which our space has some. Uh, 
it's an interesting space. There's not a lot of theater spaces across the country with a you know a three and a half foot proscenium. Um, and so with the Shakespeare Festival, I've been trying to think of the same thing. Like, how do we play to our strengths, and what is the experience that we give? One, it is I want more people. I want a lot more people. We have 400 seats, and one of the barriers that we have is do we have, you know, we have 400 seats across what like nine performances. Uh, typically for Shakespeare, yes. for Shakespeare. So that's, we're basically looking at, do we have 3,600 people that will come and spend $30? You know, that, do we have that many people that are, that are, do we have 3,600 people who find the value of Shakespeare being worth not just the time, but that much money during the year? And also there is the general experience of, of when you're in that space and there's less than 150 people, it feels empty, which immediately, towards what I'm saying about experience, it changes your experience. You start to actually ask yourself, is this the place to be? And I don't want that. That kills the play before the play started. Um, I also really believe in, like, can we make, I think if you can give ownership to your audience, theater specifically, if you can give ownership to your audience around the theater and the plays that you do, they continuously come back. Um, and I think if we can, I think making that into a community place that you could bring kids to, come to for free, break down some of those barriers. Um, it's one of the few theater spaces we have in the city that it's easy to leave. Like if you bring a kid and the kid's being noisy, you don't have to be self-conscious about leaving the theater. At, at our Gilbert Street space, like you, you're going to be noticed by everybody. Um, so it's, I mean, in terms of that, that's a big part of it. The, the smaller show, you know, Bombity, when we did it last year, there was a lot of, um, we did a hip hop piece on the hip hop adaptation of Shakespeare, which at first was um, a little nerve wracking, I think, for some people close to, close to it. Um, but my belief was that we could make it an all ages experience and that we would end up seeing people we've never seen in our space and ended up being, that worked like by far. The biggest disappointment was that we couldn't extend that show for the entire summer. Um, so it's it's kind of going back to that is can we create an all ages experience within the Gilbert Street space during the summer and then can the Shakespeare Festival become something that one I think we need to approach it in a really modern and fun way. Um, so artistically, I'm thinking of of different ways to bring the Shakespeare to life. You know, I, I think sometimes not just the money is a barrier, but we all know the language can be tricky for people, including myself. Um, and sometimes even seeing costumes or eras from, a, unless I'm watching Game of Thrones, I don't have much care for kings, mm. you know? So like at times it feels really far away and I'm like, what am I doing on Friday? Am I gonna go watch two kings talk about, like, it sounds crazy to me. Um, so a lot of it is like, how do we make that space fun and really alive? That's that's my big interest and concern. I don't want to ramble for too, too long, but. Thank you both sure. very much. Well, I'm totally supportive of this. I think uh, Riverside Theater has been a huge contributor to Iowa City for a long time. Um, and I'll have to admit, I haven't been there as often as I should be. So <laughs> having you folks come back, it just reminds sure. me. I need to put that on my calendar more. I will say our next show, Lungs, is going to be pretty fantastic. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna be really beautiful. <laughs> so we'll make sure we get there. Yeah. Um, but no, I think, you know, the city has a, has a history of supporting the arts and art venues like the Englert and things like that and film scene and Riverside. And I think it's one of those things that, that brings a lot of strength to our community. And, um, by giving support in the way the city does, it doesn't take away the 
the the need or the desire, I think, for the private sector to also very much get involved. And so doing this in terms of that public-private, I think, makes a whole lot more sense than the city trying to run these kinds of things. When, when Tom Marcus was here as city manager, the thing he always says was, I'd rather contribute money to the Engler than own a theater. Um, He's a smart man. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I see, you know, this along the same line is it brings a lot of that, that culture and vitality and um, choices for people to get out and do things and really enjoy the city of Iowa City. So um, I'm interested and, and I like the idea of the creativity and changing the way you're doing some things um, with the free show, trying to, you know, build your membership or build interest in the theater itself by giving people that opportunity and and your idea, Sean, of kind of modernizing Shakespeare some a little bit so that it, it is a little more welcoming for the non-traditional viewers, you know, of Shakespeare. Absolutely. So I'm all for it. Other comments? Uh, I'd echo what Susan says. I mean, I think that, um, you know, having free shows is something that, of course, everyone really embraces. And I'm sure you guys have thought about that over over a lot of the years. I know that Engler wants to give as many free shows as they can, but there's the economics of it. Mm -hmm. And so it's much easier said than done. But it's nice to sort of see some creative reimagining of that economic model and at the same time, bring in some new voices. I mean, I'm really excited to hopefully we'll get some new voices, uh, different members of the community <laughs> that traditionally maybe aren't theater goers traditionally. I mean, I've, I have gone to some Riverside, and uh, there's it could be a little bit more diverse in terms of um, the access there. But I know you have a lot of challenges in terms of making up all those variables work. And so to the extent that the city can, can make this free opportunity more viable, mega kudos to you. And um, it's very easy to support a project like this because you guys really make it really easy to support. Yeah, I'll spin off that just a little bit. And here's where I say, oh. Mm. <laughs> so I, too, uh, grew up attending Shakespeare in Central Park in Louisville, Kentucky. So I have very fond memories of that. Uh, but but uh, uh, hearing what Rockney said reminds me of the social justice and racial equity aspect of our strategic plan. And we've uh, done some experiments with a, ro a racial equity impact toolkit. So I wonder if you could briefly talk about the kinds of plays uh, you've put on that sure. really address that. I know you have, so. Yeah, I mean, I think in, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me. I know we used them in our, <laughs> in our brochures this past season. Um, but our, I mean, our diversity casting jumped over 50, if not 75% last year, and our Sorry, I was going to say, you should talk about Black and Blue, too. Yeah. So um, when I first got hired last uh, July, uh, we started talking about what to do. And there was a season already in place um, that was a more traditional season. And then the first conversation that we had was I wanted to do a play about Black Lives Matters and relationships between African Americans and police. Um, and so we did a piece called Black and Blue um, that dealt with an um, African-American male who had been arrested violently by a police officer years earlier who comes in contact with his sister through a separate program like a decade later, and she decides to, uh, she's a bit more of a social justice warrior, and decides to put them in the same room together and see what happens. And um, I'm from very typical Irish uh, American family where basically most of my relatives in New York are police officers. Um, also, like some one of the actors in that play is one of my closest friends and has been since grad school uh, named Barrington Baxter, who's African-American from Iowa City and who would tell me multiple stories over 
years of getting pulled over from rehearsals. We met doing theater at the University of Iowa, and there'd be times he'd be late, and we would have a conversation. He's like, I got pulled over. And what was always amazing to me was with Barrington, I mean, he's a certain type of person, and generally is really charming and laid back, but it was so... Um, commonplace for him that it just it actually he just was like yeah this is just what my life is and so I worked very much in Congress with him on making on making that piece um, the play that we did after that was called the taming which had to do with um, women in politics um, and and basically like women in in places and surrounded by power um, uh, we followed that with View from the Bridge, which had a heavy focus on immigration, multi-ethnic uh, multi cast, and I set that play inside of a shipping uh, unit. I had seen videos of um, uh, mainly from Mexico, people coming over in shipping uh, trucks, and so we, t we basically created that as our set. Um, we then did, and so like, I don't, it's something that's very close to me. Um, I think how the theater reflects both a community and politics is, it's one of the few places where you get people to turn off their cell phone and actually be quiet and listen to something for over an hour. Like not even movies do that anymore where people actually don't pull out their phone during a play or if they do they get shamed immediately <laughs> still we'll see that'll go away at some point so um so yeah that's been a major focus at the beginning of this season bakersfield i, I got very fascinated by uh how poverty is dealt with on stage and in 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 plays and so bakersfield had to do with issues in in that line even the play that we're doing right now with lungs some of it is some stuff that isn't even the play itself like lungs it was really important for me to cast it as an interracial couple to start changing what people in the community see on stage and how kind of reprogramming what a traditional relationship is. Um, and we've seen it work. I mean, our numbers, the numbers of our audience have been changing. They've been getting, um, we, we haven't seen diversity raised. And I think a big part of that is, I truly believe you you do want to see yourself represented on stage. So if a, if a theater is doing work that primarily feels very white of a very specific age group, um, that's tough. That's it's tough to be like, why why aren't people who aren't like this coming to? And you're like, well, they don't relate to this, man. Um, and we talk, and we're talking. We consistently talk about how to even continue pushing that <clears throat> further each season. You know, last year was definitely a nudge. This year is closer to a push. <laughs> and next year, that we might get over a cliff. Um, <laughs> that's kind of the way it's been moving, but that's definitely been a, a big focus, even in the Shakespeare Festival, making sure to cast it more diverse, which you take some chances with that because there are inequities even in training programs and who gets access to train in Shakespeare. Um, but we've been finding ways to work around that and still continue that as a, as an internal mission. Good deal. Thank you. Good works. Any other comments? Do we have a motion for approval? So moved. Second. Moved by Brockney, seconded by Jim. Any further discussion? All those in favor say aye. 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 Opposed? Passes 3-0. Thank you very much for Thank all you. the work that you do. It's uh, you. quite an asset. To I know. <laughs> <laughs> leave it over there. <laughs> Thanks for coming. We'll be yes. in touch, too. Thanks a lot. Thank uh -huh. you. Okay. 
let's scroll back to the top here. Item number four, consider recommendation for staff to proceed with legislative process establishing East Foster Road Urban Renewal Area. You also have a memo in your packet about this. Um, this has come about because the staff has been working with a developer who seeks to um, develop a portion of the uh, roadway that would be between um, Dubuque Street and Prairie du Chien. The developer owns most of that land, has been assembling it, um, and uh, the, the larger problem project involves him selling a parcel of that land to a senior housing living, senior living housing developer, and then retaining the rest of the land he owns and putting uh, multifamily, either apartments or fourplexes along uh, the Foster Road as it gets developed. So that's the larger project. The, um, the urban renewal project would, that we'd like to, to consider within the plan would be the city participation in, in build, just building the road and putting in the public infrastructure necessary to connect Dubuque Street to, uh, to Prairie du Chien. And um, the developer has um, uh, proposed and um, staff has been um, considering um, whether a cost-sharing arrangement that would involve uh, cost-sharing of 50% developer, 50% city on the portion of the road that the developer owns, and then the city doing 100% of the portion not owned by that developer on the western end of what would be Foster Road. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, and that's the basics, uh, essentially, of it. And, and I think you can tell even from the small maps I included on the memo approximately uh, where this is. Um, perhaps not as clear would be uh, the portion of the road that would be the developer's portion. That is, if I can clarify, from Prairie du Chien down to uh, his property line, which is almost halfway or so of the distance from the east end up at Prairie du Chien down to uh, the property line. I've got an orange uh, line here, and then it turns blue, and that would be the part that the city would be, uh, the city would consider um, doing 100%. Um, but as I said, a, an urban renewal area, uh, creating an urban renewal area is the first step to being able to consider an urban renewal project. And what we're asking for today is your approval to uh, proceed with that action, which includes a couple of legislative steps, um, which in this case, uh, first of all, involves drafting the plan, um, approving a resolution of necessity, uh, holding a consultation with the county and the Iowa City Community School District so that they understand the impacts of, of a potential TIF project there, um, having the Planning and Zoning Commission review it, and um, then finally uh, approving a resolution accepting it. This would be a, a different kind of uh, urban renewal area than we have done in the past, and it would be one that, um, if I can describe it correctly, is a type of economic development uh, plan, excuse me, <clears throat> a type of economic development plan that because um, it would be providing public infrastructure to non-low to moderate income 
residents uh, would be limited to 10 years. And it has the additional requirement of any increment, um, uh, let's see, it has the additional requirement of having to split the increment available um, in proportion to how much of Johnson County is, um, is uh, how much of Johnson County is low to moderate, qualifies as low to moderate income. And in our case, that's about 45% or so. So 45% of the increment generated in 10 years would, would be diverted to our affordable housing funds within the city. The 55% then is what is available to help um, with that public infrastructure project. And in the considerations that we've been having with the developer to date, we're uh, talking about a rebate that um, would be granted the developer um, to pay for um, the city's portion of the road that would go in. What they would be, uh, what they would have to do is put in or build that entire road themselves, pay for it up front, um, and then we would rebate them the cost of that 100% of the cities and the 50% of the um, cost shared section along their property. Those are the, I think, the high points of um, the project that would be in this newly formed urban renewal area. And I'd entertain any questions or any comments from other staff. Yeah, just a couple of big picture items here. Um, we, we talked about this scenario first when we presented the Affordable Housing Action Plan and using TIF in this way that's a little bit different. Um, we thought that the first opportunity may be McAllister. It turns out that um, this, one, this one came forward. So, um, you know, a couple of big selling points for me in, in recommending this project to you and to the, to the full council is one, this is a project that has been in our CIP that we've contemplated doing. There is um, great public benefit to putting this road through, um, not only from a public safety, safety standpoint, but just from a traffic flow in general um, standpoint. Um, so one, we can have a developer install it to our plans and specifications um, without having to put any money up front and really while putting all the financing risk on the developer because if the developer does not get the private development that surrounds this road, he will not get reimbursed the dollars for the road, yet we will still have our public improvement that we will accept. And then the second piece of that, as Wendy mentioned and I started with, is um, this would create a stream of revenue for our affordable housing fund for the 10-year period. Um, it's hard to pinpoint exactly um, what that uh, would be because it depends on the build-out schedule and the value of whatever is built out. But um, the developer certainly thinks that um, it's reasonable that, that he could recoup his portion or the, the city's portion of the, of the road, which the last estimate I saw was about 3.6 million. Mm -hmm. um, so if, if a developer can um, capture 3.6 million over 10 years, we'd capture a little bit less than that for affordable housing over that same time period. And that's tremendously valuable for us. And we're not limited to using it just in this area. We can, we can pull that money out and we can use it um, as we see fit as long as it meets those state guidelines. So incredible amount of flexibility with those funds. Yeah, I am really positive about this. I think I think for a number of reasons that you've mentioned, Jeff. One, I think it's it's a great infill area, basically. Um, you know, it's within the city limits. It's you know the south of Interstate 80. It, the connectivity, I think, is really important. I think it's important for people in the peninsula. Um, gives them easy access to Prairie du Chien and 
um, over like you know to the Hyvia North Dodge. It's there's no real close grocery store uh, for people that live there. And the idea of the split on this with the affordable housing giving us um, a dedicated revenue stream to cover at least some of what we would want to put towards affordable housing. And the idea that we get this road paid for. Um, then the next step, maybe at some point, will be resurfacing Prairie du Chien to go, <laughs> to go along with that. Because as we get a lot more traffic on Prairie du Chien, that thing's not in very good shape right now. Um, so I can see that as something that would be added to our CIP afterwards. But um, I, and I like from you know the rough sketches here and descriptions, the kinds of development that's going to go in there, um, some of the senior housing and then some of the other multifamily housing. And obviously, it's going to spur the potential for more development in the area by other property owners as well once this road's in there. So I think we could easily see a lot more. So I'm totally supportive of staff moving forward. So I'm pretty conscious about the time, so, uh, and I want to ask a few clarifying questions, maybe in part for the benefit of people who might be watching this, but there were questions I had. I think I know the answer, but I want to go through them anyhow. So do I understand correctly that the developer will pay half the cost of the eastern half of the road, and the developer will build the whole road, pay for 75% roughly of the total cost of that road with that 75% being recouped through a TIF rebate. Is that a fair way to put it? Okay, I, I know that's pretty much what you said when at the end of your presentation, Wendy, but I just wanted to restate it. Uh, another question I had w was why would we want to TIF an ordinary housing project? And then as I read on through the memo, I could see it's not an ordinary housing project. So, okay, there's the answer to that one. Next question, do I understand that 45, do I understand correctly that 45% of the TIF, TIF revenues would fund initiatives in the Affordable Housing Action Plan and the remaining 55% would be used to fund the city's portion of the road? Answer is yes, okay. Now, I think the next two questions are not so straightforward, but we'll find out. Do I understand correctly that the sustainability portion of our new TIF policy would apply to this project? I'm referring to the portion that indicates new residential projects shall be certified silver with under the National Green Building thing, et cetera. We know the language. So I'm just asking whether it's correct that it would be. Yeah, we, we are not, we do not have that same assumption because we are just focused on the infrastructure with this piece. So we're not running a gap analysis on any of these components, whether it's the commercial component or the vintage uh, housing or the townhomes, we're focused solely on the cost of that infrastructure. Um, you know, a typical road like this, when it's developed, there would be a city developer split anyway. Um, the most recent example that came before council was on Rarit Road with the residential <coughs> subdivision out there. If you recall on that one, the uh, developer paid 100% of a portion of the road and then has pledged 50% uh, for the remaining piece of the road when the south half develops. And and I can tell you when we look back at our history, um, in most cases when you have an arterial street like this, the city has funded. And in and, and many of the cases, we've only required um, a total of 25% private contribution and 75% city. So. Um, I'm circling back to your question. The answer from staff is no, we would not apply that standard unless you guys give us that, that guidance. 
Okay. Uh, it was just, to me, a pretty obvious question, so I hear a response. Um, so the next question, let's see, would be, um, uh, has to do with the Planning and Zoning Commission. It, it, when I was first reading this, in the initial part, I was thinking, I, I, don't, I do not want to act on this until the Planning and Zoning Commission has a chance to look at the rezoning in itself, which I understand will take place in December. Uh, but then I was thinking, okay, the first step in our process is to, what's, what's the language about urban renewal plan? Have a resolution of necessity. Yeah, a resolution of necessity for an urban renewal plan, right? Which does not commit the Planning and Zoning Commission to anything in particular with regard to its review. I, I want to make sure we don't get them stuck in a position where they feel like we've already said do it this way, exactly this way. I want them to have their exercise their own discretion. Well, and that's one thing I think I've always felt good about, Jim, is that I think the way staff brings things to us, it doesn't, it doesn't put anybody in a conundrum in that regard. At least I've never felt that in the eight years that I've been on council, that staff is very, very much aware of the order in which things need to be done, but they're also very much aware of maybe timelines on certain things. And so, um, I've never felt that they've put the council or, and I've never, certainly never heard anybody from P&Z or anybody else say that they, you know, felt like we had done things that then forced their hand. So um, I think as a point of clarification, that's great, but it, it's not something I've ever seen or felt that has happened with our staff. And I'd say Susan's absolutely right in this case. The, the logical progression would be the rezoning, the urban renewal area, the development agreement, um, but they are looking to break ground in the spring. So we told them we could run these processes concurrently and they just have to understand that if there's a tweak to their plan at, at planning and zoning or at council, that could um, cause us to either start over and do an urban renewal area amendment, depending on how far along we are, or at least have them recalculate that their, their projections and make sure they're still comfortable moving forward. Maybe I could say one other thing, and then Rocky might have questions and so on. When several months ago, maybe years ago, I don't know, we were talking about McAllister, and you re were connecting TIF to the construction of McAllister. I did not really understand what you were speaking about because I was not aware that there's this particular kind of TIF economic development that did, um, alternative. So I think I understand it now, and I can see the linkage between construction of the road, et cetera, and, and the other consequences. So I'm glad to see that uh, that kind of thing exists, because I think ordinarily I'd say, TIF, a residential project? No, I don't want to do that. But this, this seems to be different. A couple things to remember, too, is that um, when the Planning and Zoning Commission considers the urban renewal plan, it's really just whether the plan itself is consistent with the comprehensive plan. It, it's really, it, it shouldn't be about the details necessarily about the specific development. And they will get to the rezoning before you get to the approval of the development agreement, which is where you're going to have more of those specifics. Yeah, that, that's a crucial thing, it seems to me. Yeah. I guess the only comment I would have just in general is I think that this, this makes a lot of sense. I'm sort of putting a little bit of my um, my Strong Towns hat on in terms of when we get these upfront contributions 
from the developer where they pay all the upfront costs that we're also thinking about and projecting what are the liabilities to the city you know, 25, 30 years um, into the future. So that's just something that I think as we think about these projects, we're sort of, and I'm sure staff is probably already doing that, but I know that that's sort of an active point of discussion in a lot of urban planning circles. And um, because these maintenance of the roads, as Susan points out, they're a major expense to the city. And once we essentially assume them, they are a long-term liability. But this particular project looks good. And I think it makes a lot of sense given the fact that it was already on our capital improvement plan anyway. So. Yeah, and to piggyback on that, Rockney, I think the other thing is with this one in particular, it looks like we could have not just with this development, but with other development that might occur on that road, fairly high density, yes. which would I like the mix. which would mean more property tax revenue to help pay for the yep. roads. So, okay, That's do we point. do you want a motion on this, Wendy? In terms of yeah, okay, so move moved. approval. Okay, second. Second. Okay, all those in favor, say aye. 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 Okay. Um, on to staff time. I know we're running up against people having to leave, so anything significant on staff? Nothing new from me. Okay. Anything from the committee? No. no. Do we have a motion to adjourn? So moved. Second. All those in favor say aye. 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 We are adjourned. Thank you very much.